listening to CodesCast, a podcast from the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University. Vous écoutez CodesCast, un podcast du Centre d'histoire orale et de récits numérisés à l'Université Concordia. I'm your host, Sadie. In this episode, I talk to visual artist, writer, scholar, and educator, Kathleen Vaughn. Welcome to CodesCast. Thank you. Thank you, Sadie. Uh, and... Uh, to start, maybe can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, certainly. My name is Kathleen Vaughn. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm an associate professor of art education here at Concordia. I'm a Concordia University research chair in socially engaged art and public pedagogies, and I'm also the co-director of CODES currently. Great. Uh, and can you tell me a little bit about your work, either past or current or future? Yes, certainly. So I'm, I come to work as an artist and a, as an academic, but as an artist first. And so I am making work, research creation, as we call it in the academy, and then contextualizing it through writing uh, and linking it to questions of method, to questions of impact, uh, and to just questions of disciplinary engagement. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you working on right now? Right now, my major project has to do with the St. Lawrence River, which is an area, or an entity, I suppose, or a, a kind of a complexity of entities that's very interesting to me. A lot of my work is place-based in the sense that I'm very interested in what a particular site can offer as a, a way of engaging people, of teaching people about histories, of orienting them to present issues and mobilizing them towards a more just future. Um, and so I think of place as a very broad and complex term. Visual, visual, virtual place can exist as well as actual place. And so I've done a lot of work about different sites in Montreal and began to get interested in the shoreline of the St. Lawrence River where it meets Point St. Charles, which is my home neighborhood. An, uh, an area défavorisé, as we say, and has many social and economic challenges, even with the influx of gentrifiers. And, uh, and so I started to think then about who has access to the river, who, you know, the soil is contaminated in that site, the river is, is feeling the effects of that contamination. There's still a lot of vitality of natural features, even on a quite inaccessible shoreline. But the people in the neighborhood don't really have easy physical access to the water because of highways, railway tracks, maintenance yards, and the various features of a city that need to be put somewhere and were put along the river, unfortunately. And, uh, and so, in, uh, but I'm thinking not only about the people's access and the issues of the land-based connection to the water, but the entity of the water itself, so or the, um, the, I suppose, cleanliness, the health of the water, given that many people have an impact on it, the creatures who live in the water or use the water who are humans, but who are other than humans as well. So currently I've been working on a very large map that maps the changes in the shoreline and aims to tell the stories in part through visual means, but also through touch-sensitive moments on this textile map made with cloth, where people touch the cloth and it triggers playback of audio interviews 
of various different individuals who have some type of engagement with water, the St. Lawrence River, and the St. Lawrence with respect to Montreal in particular. My name is uh, Jean Desjardins. I'm the owner of uh, Fishing Old Montreal. I've been uh, running this business for six years now and fishing the St. Lawrence River for over 35 years. We're going out on the St. Lawrence to see what it's like to actually be on the river. I've never been on the river. Most of the people think that they have to travel like three hours away from Montreal to catch fish. But uh, like five minutes away from the downtown over here, and I'm catching average uh, 10, 15 fish per hour. Wow. And have you noticed a change in the in the years that you've been? It's better. It's better? Yeah. And so because the river is cleaner? That's one part, but the other thing is uh, we have a healthy uh, fishery over here. Oh, and okay. there's not too much pressure. I do mostly catch and release and trying to uh, people understand that yes. if they want their children to catch fish later they should think about it now yeah. you know yeah. and uh, only bring home what they will eat that, uh, night, or that night or that day or in the 80s it wasn't that good yeah okay. and now uh, the, the water clarity uh, it hasn't it hasn't improved a lot. It's not perfect, but it's yeah, better it's than nice. many other big rivers near big city. And uh, most of the people doesn't know how how good is the Saint Lawrence River because people most of the people that lives in Montreal don't even see the water because there's no access anywhere because of the port. So the audio component is where the oral history side of the work comes in. That's the visual project is now complete and I'm working on a companion audio walk that will approximate the shoreline, the original shoreline of Point St. Charles, which in some places is one kilometer further inland from where it is now because of infilling over 200 years. And so we can't walk on the actual shoreline. So I'm thinking about a walk that could take place anywhere, but that considers issues of our river, the St. Lawrence, but urban rivers more broadly, since the struggles and challenges of the St. Lawrence are ones that other rivers in other industrial countries face, but also the broader post-human questions of our planet and the uh, biodiversity, currently pollution, uh, climate change and some of those things and how they impact the river. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. So do you want to talk a little bit more about how oral history methodology was important for this project? Certainly. I'd say one of the things, you know, I'm not an oral historian. I come to oral history as a friendly alien, as a visitor from other disciplines, although my first degree was in English literature, so I do have a background to storytelling and questions of narrative. But I think one of the things that's most important to me about oral history is the whole question of shared authority and co-creation. And so I'm, when I'm telling a story, I want to, and 
I'm obligated to situate my own voice and be my own self, since that's my best bet, but I'm very interested in including other people's voices, other creatures' voices and stories in a way that um, respects their perspective, uh, includes them in the storytelling, and gives them a, the opportunity to co-create in a very large sense. I mean, they're not sitting there with me at the computer as content is edited, but they're very much implicated in the larger purpose of the work that I'm making, which is really about awareness raising and engagement, um, and supportive of that uh, through the stories that we're telling together. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on that turn to research creation or creative scholarship and mm -hmm. things like that. And maybe that has something to do with uh, your directorship here at CODES. Yes, yes. I think uh, it was in part because of the beginnings of a sort of a broadening of different ways that knowledge was being constructed and disseminated through the arts that um, I was approached by Stephen High to think about uh, the possibility of, of being nominated as a co-director for CODES. And so I think Stephen recognized at that time the opportunity that CODES had, given its strong community base with people who were engaged with all kinds of different sorts of art history, and were working through drama, through performance, through visual practice, through different kinds of um, modalities to think about how stories matter, how stories can have impact, um, and the pleasures of creating stories in those forms. And so I think that's something that, that I have taken on, Cynthia has taken on, Luis Sotelo Castro, of course, who is oral history um, and He's the Canada Research Chair in Oral History Performance and has his Acts of Listening Lab here while being situated within the theatre department. All of us are working in an increasingly interdisciplinary way to connect oral history to our disciplines in fine arts, but also to thinking beyond disciplines just in terms of how knowledge is created, what knowledge matters, and what we would like to offer to the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, a little bit what you're most excited about with these new connections and with oral history or your work in general. I'd say what I'm most excited about is the potential for exactly this whole idea of thinking of knowledge more broadly and differently so that knowledge becomes embodied in our bodies as much as it is in the bodies of art that we create whether those are visual or performative and musical in some way and so I think that that the more we can draw on multiple forms of knowing rather than simply, you know, the, the logical cognitive, the uh, more Descartian stream that has real value and is important, but isn't enough um, if we want to save the planet. So I think we need all of our capacities and attributes um, and ones that are beyond humans as well, that understand the 
wisdoms and the capacities of the natural world and are attuned to listening to those and hearing those stories in ways that are, again, non-linguistic. So uh, I think that's exciting because that means that we're truly sharing authority in a way that strikes me as ethical and uh, essential at this particular moment in our planet's life. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing that we haven't really covered is um, thinking about bringing oral history or storytelling methodology into your discipline of visual art mm-hmm. and how that has gone for you. Um, I think in terms of my work, say, as a teacher and as a professor, I had an opportunity to do that very explicitly this past fall, 2018, when Concordia was hosting the Oral History Association Conference. And Stephen High, Cynthia Hammond, my my co-director and colleague in in art history, um, and I developed a course that we taught together. We each had our own courses, but we brought them together, the students, to learn from each other at different points and to learn with the Oral History Association Conference. So um, I'd say that you know, my students were all artists and educators in some way or other, and their brief during the class, amongst other things, but more broadly, was to be thinking about storytelling through art as interdisciplinarily as possible. And so Uh, Some students were very oral history oriented, did interviews, included audio in artwork that was media based. Some used um, uh, stories as inspiration for their own visual art making. Some went to uh, songs that had been important in their cultures of origin and thought about what the story base of the sound was created through both the musicality and the lyrics, and then versioned that, in this case, it actually in an architectural model, how that would, that story would, could live in a public monument. So to be bringing oral history, which is almost always language-based, into conversation in this way can be tricky, but it can be hugely exciting as well. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome, Sadie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Codescast was produced by me, Sadie Couture, and Maeva Thibault. Original idea by Marie-Anne Gagnon, supervised by Stéphane Martelli. Original music for Codescast was composed by Jacob Lassard.